Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. And this time, this time I'm not lying. Stuart Stevens, one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, ad maker for a ton of Republicans over the years, including for George W. Bush's presidential campaigns, where I met him in a spin room after a Bush-Gore debate. Uh, The spin room is where advocates for the two candidates spin for the media after the debate. And he was spinning, of course, for Bush, and I was spinning for Gore. I clearly did a better job obviously, because Gore won the popular vote. Gore got uh, more votes than, than, than Bush. Anyway, oddly, Stuart and I became friends, and now he's become a, a bitterly, bitterly disaffected Republican, and I mean bitterly, to the point of some borderline self-loathing. Uh, I had him on the podcast a couple years ago when he wrote a book about the Republican Party entitled It was all a lie, and I wanted to pick up on that conversation and talk about his old party today and going forward. Of course, back in that 2000 Bush-Gore race, it was all a lie, and uh, that's what I was saying in the spin room that night. Bush had been saying over and over again that, quote, by far the vast majority of my tax cut is going to those at the bottom, and of course, The opposite was true. The vast majority of his tax cut was going to those at the top, and it exploded the debt, which had been nothing. Clinton handed Bush a balanced budget. Bush handed Obama the Great Recession and a massive deficit. Republicans are always deficit hawks when Democrats are in the White House, but of course, they're the ones that have historically created the, the, by far the largest debt. But what Stuart and I talk about here is about much darker stuff. You know, in 1995, I wrote a book, uh, Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations. And of course, it was really about Limbaugh as a liar, not about how fat he was. This, this was before fat shaming uh, rightfully became a, a bad thing to do. And I'm sorry about about that, but it was about his lying to people who were disaffected and angry and feeling that elites like the Clintons were inherently corrupt and hated them. 
And really, that was nothing new. It, it goes back to Richard Hofstetter's The Paranoid Style of American Politics. He wrote that in 1964, and it was about a, a particular style of conspiracy theory and what he called movements of suspicious discontent throughout American history. Of course, 1964 was the year that Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater, himself a, a, a decent man, but whose slogan was, extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice. And Goldwater's politics were extreme. He voted against Social Security and Medicare and the Civil Rights Bill. On the other hand, Goldwater was the guy who went down to the White House and told Nixon that Republicans in the Senate would vote to convict him if the House impeached him. But many of Goldwater's supporters were, were the kind of extreme nutcase Trumpites that we see today. And Father Coughlin was part of that legacy. Joe McCarthy, of course, and Pat Buchanan and Newt Gingrich, uh, both of whom, uh, Buchanan and Gingrich, I wrote about in Rush Limbaugh, is a big, fat idiot. And then in 2003, I wrote a book, Lies and Lying Liars, who tell them a fair and balanced look at the right. And that, of course, was largely about Fox News. Now, if Rush Limbaugh was the Big Bang of the right-wing disinformation universe, Fox News was the key element in expanding that universe and a huge part of why we have a frightening, frightening moment, a country that is so dangerously divided. And as we track these indictments against Donald Trump and pay any attention to Fox News and stuff on social media, you have to fear that our democracy is on the line because the Republican Party has given up on democracy. When the Republican National Committee called January 6th, quote, legitimate political discourse, that kind of made that official. 70% of Republicans who say they'll vote in these primaries think Donald Trump won the 2020 election. Watching Trump now is scarier than ever, and watching Republican voters' support for him increase with each indictment is depressing and frightening. The case against Trump in the January 6th case, to me, is overwhelming, and that's before we hear the evidence from the grand jury, which I'm looking forward to. And Trump will violate the order and lie and lie and lie and lie about the case, and Fox News will have guest after guest back him up, and at the end of the show, the Fox host will say, Fox News believes that Joe Biden won the 2022 election. That's what they do now. And Trump will be convicted, and uh, folks, we've got ourselves a dangerous situation, courtesy of the special prosecutor. Uh, that's, that's my Limbaugh. <laughs> <laughs> in case you weren't a big fan of uh, of Limbaugh or, or of my impression. Anyway, it's bad, and today's Republican Party is to blame, and Stuart Stevens agrees. As you'll hear Stuart say, Republicans in Congress caved to Trump because all they care about is position and power, and you'll hear Stuart turn a little dark 
At one point, he compares today to Germany in the 1930s. That's, that's, that's dark. Now, we taped this before the latest indictments, and of course, things have gotten just much worse since. Trump is clearly panicked and spreading his bile and lies, and I don't think the judge can put him in jail once he starts talking about the evidence that has been produced by the, by the prosecution. But she can sanction his lawyers. And over and over, say 50,000 the first day, uh, 100,000 each the next, 200 grand each the next day. Uh, pretty soon, Trump might have to defend himself. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat. Anywho, we got Stuart Stevens. We laugh a bit. That helps. And I know you'll really get a lot out of this one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Okay, let's, let's talk about Republicans because... You know, it was all a lie, is saying that uh, what the Republicans were selling... Was a lie. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay, yeah. Yes, okay, it's the title of the book. So talk about that, and talk about... I, I want you to draw a li- draw some lines between then and now, how this disaster happened, which is well, Donald here's Trump. Well, my, here's my macro take on it. And, you know, after Trump one in that old kind of high school english teacher sense if you can't write it you don't understand it i didn't intend to write a book i was just literally trying to figure out how it is that i'd miss this my my theory of the case is that there were always two strands to the republican party in post-world war ii america there was a eisenhower strain that was boring governing sane and a mccarthy strain that was xenophobic often racist, conspiratorial, non-governing. 
And those of us, like in Bush world, we believed that we were the dominant gene. I mean, we, I used to literally sit in the same room with Nicole Wallace, Mark, Matthew Dowd, uh, Michael Gerson. And we all came to the same conclusion about Trump uh, sort of immediately. But we believed that, at least I can speak for all myself, wrong. I, be, I believed that we were the dominant gene and that the dark side, which we saw and which we played to too much, was a recessive gene. And if for no other reason than the political necessity of a changing country, our side of it, the compassionate conservative side, call it, would be the dominant gene. And I don't know any conclusion to come to it, but I, I couldn't have been more wrong. And we were the recessive gene. And here's the thing here. Can I say, just interrupt you to hear it? I think I'm quoting you, <laughs> this idea anyway, which is what happened is, is that anyone who was uh, of your gene pool that was a Republican official, especially a senator or something like that, or representative, fucking chickened out and did not challenge Trump once he became president, even after January 6th, basically. Yeah, I think it's and more still evil. Not. And still it, not. I think it's more evil than that. Okay, go, go ahead. In my view... As long as we're talking about evil. Yeah, I might. Um, I think that, say what you will about Trump, he is very good at sensing weakness in people. He has that kind of animal instinct. And I think that he looked at the Republican Party and said that these people really don't believe in anything. And if I promise them power, they will be happy to, as a family values party, elect, you know, a guy who goes to church every 10, 15 years to marry a model who talks in public about having sex with his daughter. They'll be fine with that if I give them power. And he was right. And I, I don't believe people abandon deeply held beliefs in a few years, unless there's some extraordinary intervening event. I don't believe in UFOs. If one lands while we're talking, I'll change my opinion. That didn't happen. So all of this stuff that we said were values, fundamental values, character counts, strong on Russia, strong on the Soviet Union, strong deficit matters. Democrats were the victim shopping party. All of these things. They weren't values. They were just marketing slogans. And I, you know, I, I woke up and I felt like the guy working for Bernie Madoff thought we were actually beating the market. It's like, what? This is this. <laughs> we weren't. We, we really, okay. Really? We weren't. Now, I knew Bernie was not beating the market. Yeah, well. Now, I mean, part of it, as a Democrat, you were, uh, I guess, had worked for Republicans. But I was. I, so... I, I don't think that's a good enough excuse for me. I don't have a good, um, the only, the only, I don't have a, I don't have any excuses. I have explanations. And that is that, you know, I, I really, everybody in my family have been lawyers and judges. And I, I kind of had this, I was able to revert to this view like lawyers do. I don't care if the client's innocent or guilty. I'm just going to give them the best defense. And somehow lawyers have erected a, a ethics code where that's considered like the highest value which I don't really understand. But anyway. So so Trump was right about my former colleagues that really just they were there for the position and the power. 
I listen, Al, I, I think, you know, everybody says you can't talk about World War II and everything. I think you have to. I, I, I think the parallels to 1930s Germany are shockingly precise. You know, if you look at Franz von Patten, who, you know, the aristocrat, Prussian aristocrat who did more to usher in Hitler into power. You know, he wrote a, a memoir in 1952, and he's still justifying it. I mean, after things kind of went a little sideways there, right? I mean, you know, 100 million people dead, Holocaust. Yeah. And his justification is we, the aristocrats, had lost touch with the working class, and they were going to become Bolsheviks, Russian. They were going to become communist. Uh, and Hitler was someone who understood the working class and that we thought we could control him. And if you go back and you read what Mitch McConnell has said and others in the establishment, that's exactly what their opinion was about Trump. And as always, they were wrong. What was what was McConnell's excuse on the impeachment when he had he gave that speech? You know, he voted not to convict and gave this incredibly passionate speech afterwards why he should have voted to. I think Mitch McConnell has done more to corrupt American politics than than, than Donald Trump. I mean, I, I think he is really a, has been just a hugely negative force. I agree. And and the destruction of faith in the Supreme Court, which is monumentally important, I think largely lies at his feet. Well, of course, not taking up Garland and then yeah, no, and just uh, lying about Coney Barrett and, and lying, lying about it. And laughing even when... Yeah, basically what McConnell said, I can do this, so stop me. As you know, better name. I don't understand why in the first place he didn't say that. In the first place, he said, do you remember the justification for not taking up Garland was that it was an election year? Yes. And that the American people should really choose the person who's going to nominate the next. So that was it. Why didn't he just go, we have the majority, we're not going to bring him up. If he had said that, well, listen, this is a guy who still quotes Martin Luther King. He's the most unself-aware human on the planet. I'm not sure that's unself-aware. Isn't cynicism or maybe <laughs> a it's form of awareness? Maybe, you're right. Maybe you're, you're right. I maybe mean, come just, on. Maybe it's just, you're right. If you're just calculating. And then, then Amy Coney Barrett was not I look German. forward to a day when a man isn't judged by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. Where he said, uh, you know, there's a promissory note that we're here to collect. So, I mean, so then you have Amy Comey Barrett, who's elected not near the election, but people were already voting for president. Uh, tens of millions of people. By the time she got sworn in, yes, it was eight days before the election. Tens of millions of votes. And he had said, yeah. like, uh, on, on, on Garland, he said, there's already been votes in, in New Hampshire. Yeah. And look, the Supreme Court now is at the lowest level of support. Yeah, but they got what they wanted. They got what they wanted. The evangelicals. Yeah, which is why if I was if I was a Democrat in the U.S. Senate, I would push to add more Supreme Court justices. I absolutely would do it. And I would say, stop me. Well, uh, it, we'd have to get, uh, you know, 51 who would do that. And I, the, you know, I can't think of an easier and, argument to convince the American people who really don't know anything about it, that we have the same number of Supreme Court justices when the country was, what, 20 million, something like that. It's now 330 million. We've expanded every other area of the judicial system. The only argument is against this is that then what happens when 
it, it all flips. Yeah, I think you can make that argument. I, I think that argument can be made if you carry something to extreme about anything. But I, listen, I, I think it would be a very easy sell to the American public that Supreme Court could, you know, that one of the reasons they're able to take so few cases now is because there's only nine of them. And we, every other court system has expanded. We should expand this. And I would use the argument that it's not partisan because it could benefit both parties. I could sell that. <laughs> I could sell that. Oh, uh, okay. I actually don't think now, whether could. or not it's a, whether or not it would be the best thing for the country. Is no, it's thing. weird. Like nothing, nothing burns me more than that. And I was there for that. And they and they sat there and they technically would say they didn't purge it themselves because, you know, using the, the language of precedent. But they deliberately deceived the American public that they would not vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. They did that calculatingly, knowingly. Well, they all said it was precedent and it was super precedent. That's not the same as saying I will not. It's not. But every other, but 99% of Americans would have heard that and thought it was. And they knew that. Except that every Democrat on the committee knew that that they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Hey, look, there's five Supreme Court justices in the history of America. You probably know this that have been confirmed by senators representing less than a majority of the country as far as votes. And all five are on the Supreme Court right now. I didn't know that, but that, of course, makes sense. Yeah. And three of those were appointed by a president who lost the popular vote. And arguably, the same with Bush, even though he didn't appoint any in his first term. Right. had, Had Bush not been elected, by the, the first time, and then he, he wouldn't, wouldn't have been, been around for the second one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's so many uh, great ironies there. And that's the makeup of the Senate. Yeah, which is getting, I mean, look, this is, this is you know, this better than anybody. But, you know, as large states get larger, we're going to have this increasing disproportionate representation in the Senate of the American public. And right now, I think it's it's 40 million. It's something like 70 percent of Americans will live in states that have half the senators. Yeah. Or rather, 30 percent. Right. 30 percent. Yeah. Something like that. Now, here's my solution is divide. And this is maybe a better solution than your Supreme Court, although it doesn't affect the same thing. But why not divide California into eight states? <laughs> and then Jerry man and then gerrymandered the shit out of it so that like Fresno and West Hollywood are in the same state. So every state is just 60-40. Every it looks weird. Well, let, 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 you know, um maybe start with DC. Why not? Maybe start with DC first. DC, Puerto Rico, and then eight. And then even so, California would have, you know, five million each state. But listen, brother, this is my argument. You know, I, I have become, though it's virtually meaningless, but I have become a passionate advocate for abolishing the Electoral College. Well, I have too. Yeah, it would help Republican Party. You know how to do it? They would have to Do you change. have a plan? Do you have a plan to do it? Uh, I do. What is your, is your plan, the state legislature? National popular vote, interstate yeah. Yeah. compact. Which is what, 29 states have passed now, right? 
No, no, not that that many. Uh, it's 16 states and D.C., uh, which together have 205 electors uh, between them. And I think Michigan will be next. They have the trifecta. They have the governor and both houses of the state legislature, and they have 16 electoral votes. So that would bring us to 221, which is just 49 short. So, And for people who don't understand this, the uh, Minnesota belongs, for example, to the Great Lakes Interstate Compact, right? Because we're on the Great Lakes. And, and the way to join the Great Lakes Interstate Compact, if you're Michigan or Minnesota or Wisconsin, is your state legislature says, let's join it. And uh, they pass a bill and the governor signs it and you boom, you're a part of it. And then you have to obey the rules of the interstate compact. Well, the national popular vote interstate compact, the rules are that we, when there are 270 votes amongst our members, when that happens, we all will give our electors to the winner of the national popular vote. Yep. And it's a pretty elegant thing. You don't have to amend the Constitution. And it'll have some constitutional challenges. Yeah, that, that's sure. my question. I mean, do you think it would survive a constitutional challenge? I guess it would depend on who the Supreme Court was. probably. But. That's a good point, because I think with this court, it doesn't matter. But right. from what I've been told by constitutional lawyers and really good ones is that, yes, it should. You know, my, the point I make is, you know, there are... Four million Trump voters in California that didn't get their voice heard. Why should they be silenced? Yeah. Second largest number of Trump voters of any state is California. First is second. That's my argument for them. Yeah. Yeah. Why even vote if you're in California and you're a Republican yeah. for president? I want Trump voters to feel good about voting. And uh, I don't know. That's my why, goal why, in life. You know, that that doesn't meet a constitutional challenge of equal representation. A poor nutcase, uh, racist, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant Republican in California who feels like, my vote doesn't count. <laughs> well, Al Franken <laughs> cares. As a solution for you. <laughs> is the national popular vote interstate compact where everybody's vote is the same, even if you live in yeah. Alabama your vote as a Democrat is the same as that Republican in California, which it is now, which is nothing. So let, let, let's talk about this transition from a Republican Party of, of Bush, who I did not like because of Iraq and because he gave a big tax cut, uh, a vast majority of which went to those at, at, at the top. He was for immigration. He was for immigration reform. And look, the first, well, really, arguably the only uh, major piece of domestic legislation he passed, but the first was No Child Left Behind, which, you know, you can argue the merits of it, but, you know, there's that famous picture of him signing it with Ted Kennedy over his right shoulder. Yeah, they both wrote a flawed bill. I was on the education committee, and we spent a lot of time trying yeah. to... But the it. idea that you could work with Ted Kennedy would now be, this would be submitted in a war crimes tribunal now in the Republican Party. <laughs> we have this photo. You have been seen with known yeah, un-Americans. But, you know, when Bush was governor, it was a Democratic legislature, and the guy who ran the, were in the legislature was the lieutenant governor, who'd been lieutenant governor forever, Bob Bullock. Yep. Remember him? Yeah. And, you know, Bush wisely and Bullock wisely said, let's work together. So for Bush to work with Democrats was 
easy for him. We, we've seen some stuff, e- even in the Biden administration, in terms of chips and in terms of yep. uh, infrastructure, and where he's gotten both parties to work together. You know, I, I just imagine working as you're inside the White House, you're working on congressional relations. You have to go up on the Hill and lobby a party that will not admit that you're a legally elected president. Like, really? I mean, just think about it. We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I want to ask you this. What percentage of Republicans are MAGA Republicans? What Republicans are within the uh, realm of people who would support Trump? It's like they're not MAGA, but they're MAGA sympathizers. And what percentage are just not, they won't vote for Trump? The last is probably 5 to 7%. That's it. That's it. But that's enough. You know, I have a very easy test on this. I want to hear it. If you voted for Donald Trump, you're a MAGA Republican. That's it. It doesn't matter if you say, well, you know, I'm a Republican. I voted for Trump, but I think it's not. I wish he wouldn't tweet or I wish he wouldn't talk about having sex with his father. (laughs) That's very funny, actually. You're a a MAGA Republican. (laughs) You voted for him. You know, I have these friends that say, well, you know, I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for Pence. And I'm like, well, how does that work? No. How does that work? Just explain that to me. What about people who voted for Trump in 16 and then didn't vote for him in 20? There's got to be. I would say I would say that they're not a MAGA Republican then because they didn't vote for Trump. And how many of of them are there? I mean, obviously, he got he got more votes the second time. There was just much, much, much bigger turnout. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. Trump never broke. Romney got 47.2%. Trump got 46.2 in his first election, and he got 469 in his second election. So he never got as large a percentage of the vote as Romney did. And what did Stein get? I forget, but enough. Yeah. You know? So anyway, what are you asking? What, what, what percent are gettable i i i guess what i'm saying is uh how close are we looking at and this is far off and can't would would he be elected say he had actually been not just indicted but convicted in one of these yes could he be nominated is an easier question the answer to that is yes could he win an election um 
look, I go back to this. In a world in which Donald Trump can be elected president, you have to concede anything's possible because it wasn't like, you know, Donald Trump revealed himself as a different person. He's the most consistent person we've ever had to run for president. Could he win? Yeah, sure. He could win. Yeah, because the Republican Party will back him. Look, uh, Mitch McConnell is afraid to say his name, literally afraid to say his name. You're never going to run for election again, and you're afraid to say Donald Trump's name. So to me, the test here is, would you vote, if Donald Trump is a nominee, will you vote for him? You know, that's why they're making that as a litmus test to get into debates. I don't know how much you followed Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, who was a client of mine. Asa's been very good on, you know, he was like one of the few Republicans that came out after Trump was indicted in New York and said, well, we have rule of law. You have to respect that. Don't yeah, attack. That's them. a low bar, uh, bar in terms uh, isn't of that an incredible saying thing? the right isn't thing. That, isn't that, I, I could not agree <laughs> more. That, that, that has become right. notable. Like, I'm for the rule of law. Okay. If you pay off someone not to talk. I know. It was like I don't when, care when, what the reason when, when Trump, is. When Trump went down to the Alabama LSU game and they said that they would throw students out if they chanted against him. So it was the only only place, you know, you could uh, chant like LSU sucks, <laughs> go to hell LSU, but you couldn't chant rule of law. You would get tossed out. But that that is but that that's worth focusing on. That's that's the bar now. If you're for rule of law, you're you're out of sync with the majority of the Republicans in this country, including the Republican leadership. DeSantis, I think it's possible that DeSantis, uh, he's out early because I've never quite seen anyone in a retail political situation performs so badly. No, he does not. He does not like people. And and that's fine. There are people who don't like people who seem like they like people. Yeah, no, you can fake it. I, I think DeSantis is a very dangerous guy because he's not a dumb guy. He's not uneducated. And what he has attempted to do in Florida and what he's done is is extraordinarily dangerous. And if he was president, he'd be able to do a lot more of these things. And it's so much of its race. But the whole thing is about, listen, Al, it's all about race. The whole, the whole certification vote was about race. Where were these votes that were being contested? Where there were African-Americans in large percentages? Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia. That, it was, it's all about race. And it's because, look, 1956, Eisenhower gets 43% of the black vote. To, uh, 1964, Goldwater gets seven. Okay, 2020, Trump gets eight. So you go up one point every whatever that is. You know, you got a ways to go. You know, my dad, my dad was a Republican. We used to watch Cronkite right. uh, at dinner, right, on tray tables. My mom made, was a great cook. We had, these, these are not TV dinners. This is really good dinner, but we had, had it in front of the TV. And 1963, Southern sheriffs are using clubs against demonstrators and sicking dogs on them and fire hoses. And my dad points to the TV and says, no Jew can be for that. No Jew can be for that. And my dad had voted Republican his entire life until 64. And he voted for Johnson because of civil rights. And that's when the South switched yeah you know democrats lost the south again my dad 
and that's kind of about it. But they lost the South. And ever since then, I just see the Republican Party, and not not W, but I've seen the Republican Party increasingly become also a party that doesn't like poor people. It's a white grievance party. Do you know? Do you know uh, Heather McGee? Do you know her book? No, no. That, the, it, you'd enjoy this book. Yeah, yeah. It's, tell me, it's tell called me. The Sum of Us. Ah, no, I've never read it. Okay, this is a book that makes the case that uh, white elites have always told working class whites that whatever helps black people hurts you. Yep. And she is brilliant. A br- she's my favorite guest I've ever had, and I've had her on three times. This book, The Sum of Us, is such a brilliant, eloquent book. And, you know, redlining was started by FDR, okay? It was started during the New Deal. It's 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 an exquisite, exquisite book. I'll, I'll, I'll download it after we hang up. Okay. But this is why, you know, why doesn't Mississippi expand Medicaid? Isn't that amazing? I, I don't understand the politics of it. I don't understand why it wouldn't be good politics. Can I, can I talk to that? Because I know the value of Medicaid expansion very well. Yeah. In Minnesota, it so helped rural Minnesota. Yes. And when uh, the Republicans in 17 tried to rewrite health care, they took out Medicaid expansion. So I would go to red areas of Minnesota and have town meetings in hospitals. And they were apeshit. These are really Republican towns. And what would happen with Medicaid expansion is that, well, before Medicaid expansion, if someone came into the hospital uh, in an emergency room and they didn't have Medicaid, which was a lot more people, the hospital would have to eat it. Well, now with Medicaid expansion, a lot more, lots and lots and lots more people had Medicaid and the hospital would get money, would get paid. And as a result, these hospitals, these rural hospitals started being flush and they could expand their care. And the five states that have voted by referendum, uh, the last five states to vote by referendum for Medicaid expansion, Idaho, Oklahoma. Missouri, Utah, Nebraska. And but it's a fucking confederacy now. Basically, that I don't understand. You know, there's a Mississippi governor's race. You know, Mississippi has this kind of nothing guy I've known forever who's Tate Reeves, who's governor. You know, it's the homeroom president in the fifth grade is governor syndrome. Um, (laughs) I don't understand the politics of it because. In Mississippi, there's more white kids on food stamps uh, than black kids. Tremendous white poverty in Mississippi. Whatever helps black hurts poor white kids, Uh, even if it's irrational. That's that's Heather's book. I could not agree more. And I think that what is so dangerous about what's happened in the Republican Party, we've had hate movements before plenty in the United States, Father Coughlin, you know, whatever. We've never had a national party adopted as its fundamental premise. Look, I, I just I just finished a book. It's going to come out this fall. And the premise is that 
when democracies slide into autocracy, there's five elements that have to be there. They have to have propagandists, got that. They have to have financiers, Lord knows they have that. They have to have the support of a major party, God knows they have that now. You have to have a, a legal structure that justifies it. So Georgia passes a law that they can, state legislation can overturn the popular vote. When they do it, it's perfectly legal. And you need shock troops. And all of those elements are in place now. And we talk about them individually, but we don't talk about them collectively enough. And they're all inter intertwined. So you're thinking more about things now than early on <laughs> when you were just doing the ads. Hey, I just liked winning, man. I liked looking at the scoreboard. I quickly realized, which I think people do in sports too, that the pain of losing was greater than the pleasure of winning. But, you know, I, I got into being a gunslinger. You know, I worked a lot abroad. I, I liked winning and losing, and I liked knowing which one you did. It wasn't a very profound value you structure. You bastard. It wasn't a very profound value structure. And I had this other area of my life that I wrote. And I arguably cared more about that, um, put more thought into that. Um, bastard. But. I'm just going to keep saying that, you know. Yeah, the rest well, of and the problem is I was, I was I, I, you know, for reasons <laughs> of fate, you know, I had a, a certain knack for this. I was really good at it. Hey, let me ask you about the Lincoln Project. Is yeah, it which is coming, what we're doing with the Lincoln Project. Yeah. What are you doing with the Lincoln Project? Well, you know, trying to use skills that we had as Republicans, although now it's expanded. Joe Trippi's joined us, and that's a huge help. He was a, a, for, a famously uh, Howard Dean's Howard campaign Dean's manager. A guy I always hated up going, hated, I tell him that. You know, I hated going up against Trippi. Because the guy was just really good. And we're trying to use the skills that we have, that we developed in the Republican Party, to reach that group of Republicans primarily that are open to not voting for Trump. You know, famously, you know, we call it the Bannon line because famously, you know, Steve Bannon said that if these guys can get five or six percent of Republicans not to support Trump, we'll be screwed. And it turns out he was right. That's what happened last time. Yep. And why wouldn't it happen more this time? Because since then, everyone's seen January 6th. Yep. Everybody has <laughs> gets to see, okay, he <laughs> not only did he take these documents and keep them, but he lied about them. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, also, he basically threatened Raffensperger uh, saying yep. if, you know, you have to find me these votes. And if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. Plus, Biden has done a really good job. He has. Uh, he, but, but the numbers aren't there uh, in terms of support for him. You know, it's amazing. So you go back to the Romney-Obama campaign, right? On Election Day, both of those guys had favorables of 50%. I don't know if we'll ever see that again in our lifetime. It's, it's really extraordinary. Yeah. When things go bad, when democracy slide into autocracy, it's always because you those who support democracy can't imagine it not happening. I can't imagine it happening. And it can happen here. I mean, it is happening here already. It has. Um, and I can't tell you that w w what the outcome's going to be. I think if Donald Trump, you know, part of the problem is to talk about this is the language, because you sound so alarmist. 
to, to me, it's like a pandemic. Whatever you say at the beginning sounds alarmist. At the end, it'll prove to be woefully inadequate. But I believe that if Donald Trump is, is elected president, and arguably DeSantis too, um, it'll be the last election that's recognizable as such in America. Now, oh, I, I, I couldn't that. agree more. Yeah. Could not agree more. And I know these it's... people. Jason Miller was my, my intern. God help me. I'd like to apologize to the world. Please, please. And that's the only reason I'm doing this stuff with the Lincoln Project, Al, is because I feel responsible. And I, 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 I don't have anybody to blame. You know, there was a moment, I remember it so clearly, I was following these key states, and I'd worked in all these states. I did five presidential elections before, and I did governors and senators and all these states. And I was looking at, you know, the Pennsylvanias, the Arizonas, and about 10 days out, you know, I was looking at all these numbers, and I, I, it was clear to me Trump was going to lose. And I, I can remember staying up all night making a Lincoln Project video and then, you know, going to sleep saying, like, okay, when this thing is over, I can quit doing this. And had you asked me then, it just shows how naive I still was or am, you know, if Trump loses by north of 300 electoral votes, you know, 8 million popular vote, well, Republicans say that he won. And I would have just laughed. I would have said, yeah, of course. What are they going to do, say he lost? Of course they are. They may not like it, but of course. I mean, you don't walk out. There's not like an argument about the score after the Super Bowl. You know, it's the score. And I was wrong. Well, he, um, th th and this is the danger of uh, when you're talking about shock troops and totalitarianism, which is yeah. basically the truth doesn't matter. And that's why this election, I mean, if Trump wins this time, there'll be no pretense. There's going to be no, oh, he actually picked Mattis, a pretty good guy. <laughs> He's not going to, there's not going to be anybody in that administration who isn't, you know, a factotum. Listen, here's the thing. You have to look at it from their perspective, right? Their perspective is that because we're headed to becoming a minority-majority country, democracy has failed. So therefore, we have to move to a different form of governance because democracy is proving to be unworkable because us, we, are not going to be able to win any of these elections. So. We have to change. And that's their justification. They, they, they think it's a necessity to save America. No, nobody ever tried to change the rules for game they were winning. Nobody that had like Tom Brady on their team said, you know, we really should do away with this forward pass shit. You know, like that's just too much. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to curate an election. And what are they going to do? So, so let's just maybe end on that. What are they going to do? What are we need to be looking for? What can we prevent well, them I mean, you from look doing? At, you, you look at where, where all the pressure points are. And what I think is the most troubling here is if you take like Carrie Lake as a test case, right, in Arizona, and then take Glenn Youngkin, governor of Virginia. Glenn Youngkin, smart guy, MBA, sane. He's supposed to be the good Republican, right? Mm -hmm. So what does he end up doing? Campaigning for Carrie Lake. Youngkin didn't change the Republican Party. The Republican Party changed Youngkin. 
and it is the corrupting. And this is what you see in America. It's not that you see in America a great embrace of Trumpism, but you see an accommodation for Trumpism. So you have mm-hmm. CNN now struggling with how do we tell both sides of a lie fairly. And you see some, someone like Mick Mulvaney, you know, White House chief of staff, a, a guy who every reason to believe was for Trump if he had won re-election, then decided he wasn't when he didn't, who uh, was there during COVID. I mean, this is someone who was part of decisions that resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of people. And he's rewarded for it. He's on CBS now. It's not that there's negative consequences. There are positive consequences. His career is advanced by being part of this. So we're accepting this. It's acceptable to be Marjorie Taylor Greene. She emerges as the second most powerful member of the House of Representatives. This is how autocracy gets accommodated. You adjust. It's not that you have to embrace it. Nobody really embraced National Socialism that was a majority. And even Victor Orban, more so now because he controls everything. But he was never overwhelmingly popular. And that's how it works. And we just kind of go along. So sometimes you have somebody like DeSantis. He goes a little far and says, okay, I'm going to build a prison next to Disney World. And, you know, he gets in a fight with the happiness company. How do you get in a fight with the happiness company? And Disney says, well, thank you. That's good. We're going to cancel a billion-dollar expansion in Florida that would have been 20,000 jobs at an average of $120,000 per year salary. And you don't think there's a governor in America that's not picking up the phone saying, come here? So sometimes they go too far and they get called out. Yeah, I, I, I really think he's one of the most ham-fisted. Uh, uh, I, 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 I'll predict it right now. He doesn't make it to, what, what is Iowa going to be there first? Iowa's first. He doesn't make it to Iowa. That's, that's a brash uh, prediction, but um, I just, you know, I've seen, you've seen that happen, right? You've seen. Yeah, no, no, you, you, you know. I, I, it's a separate conversation, but I can tell you why I think he'll stay into Iowa, and it's because of Jeff Rowe, who's working for him, who did Ted Cruz, and even Ted Cruz is able to win. You know, it only takes, on the Republican side, it only takes 32,000 votes to win Iowa. It's basically a big Texas A&M student body elect. Well, I was there for the Iowa straw poll where Bush uh, won. That was the first time I met him. Uh, I tried to trick him. I said, because uh, I was covering it, I was covering a straw poll for George Magazine. And so I got to ask him questions. And I said, um, you know, you've been c- accused of uh, using cocaine. I'm not going to ask you that. I'm not going to ask you that. But um, have you ever manufactured uh, crystal meth? <laughs> you ask him that? Yeah. And he wouldn't answer. He didn't answer. And that fooled me. I said, I thought you were going to answer. And then I was going to say, then why won't you answer the Coke question? And he said, you say I fooled you. Uh, (laughs) You know, his answer was when, you know, his response was when I was young. I was young and irresponsible. I was young and irresponsible. Which I heard this guy who was one of Bush's best friends 
standing off stage once said, I wish he quit saying that because it's so true and it just depresses me. We had so much more fun. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, Stuart. Okay, brother. Great talking. All, all the best. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.